Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 96th episode of the Truth Island podcast. The idea of celibacy has been around for thousands of years and crops up in just about every ancient society. In Buddhism, celibacy is said to be directly prescribed by the Buddha himself for all monks and nuns. In fact, in some monastic interpretations, completely abstaining from sex is considered a prerequisite to enlightenment, as enlightenment is seen as the ultimate cessation of desire and requires intensive contemplation, which it is believed that sex disrupts. This idea would later spread throughout the Middle Ages into Christianity, with St. Augustine tying sexual desire more closely to original sin based on his ideas of St. Paul, who believed that celibacy could allow a man to better serve God. However, historians debate that this was perhaps a clever way of preventing priests from having offspring so that they would not fight for church property through inheritance. In ancient China, many emperors would surround themselves with loyal eunuchs or castrated men, as it was believed that they could be of no threat since they were incapable of producing an heir on their own. Much speculation surrounds whether or not sexual intercourse can interfere with a person's cognitive abilities, with famous inventors such as Nikolai Tesla crediting his celibacy as being one of the sources of their creative and intellectual in achievements. The philosopher Immanuel Kant, who many believe died a virgin, also believed that sexual desire not only impaired men's better faculties, but diverted man's ability to do what is right as sexual desire being a primitive urge reduces our agency as humans. In more recent times, celibacy has gone out of fashion with most religions preaching a form of abstinence until marriage, at least for the lay person. However, work is still needed to figure out what function celibacy might still have, with rumors of professional sports athletes such as Muhammad Ali abstaining from sex for at least six weeks before a scheduled fight. Joining me to explore the hidden power of chastity, I am once again joined by Alexander. So Alex, what would you be willing to give up in order to achieve enlightenment? Oh man, um, being celibate for enlightenment, I don't, I don't know if I'm that committed <laughs> to, to spiritual practices, <laughs> to be completely frank. I <laughs> uh, can't believe you had me admit that as the first, first opener, yeah. Um, same here, man. I think that's a hard pass. You know, I, I, don't, know, I don't like as much as no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I think that, um, you, you know, there is the, the literature goes back and forth where 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 some religions seem to say like, hey, it's disrupting your prayer. It's disrupting your mental ability to concentrate or to contemplate. And, and I think I think that's something that is drilled into every Buddhist monk is this idea of like deep contemplation. And if you're thinking about sex all the time, it's really difficult to do that. I, you know, I read a study maybe like two or three years ago that the average man thinks about sex, you know, like you know, 10 times an hour or something ridiculous like that. And, and I, I can see where they're coming from. Yeah. And it's, it's such an interesting uh, history behind it as well. I mean, just, just how much sex affects our lives um, as, as a, a species is just absolutely astounding um, between the reappropriation of assets or wealth between core tenets within different types of philosophies I mean, it really is something that should be taught, I think, a little bit more 
with a spiritual angle in school. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the most profound spiritual experiences that I've had have been with somebody I've been with, you know, has been with, with a relationship that I'm closely tied to. And I don't practice celibacy before marriage. So, you know, that does happen. And there is this idea of a soul tie happening between you and this individual when you're engaged in this exchange of creative and spiritual energy. And that can be taxing. It can be taxing emotionally. It can be uh, taxing on your time. It can create a, it can create a child and then you have to raise this child, you know? So (laughs) there's a whole added layer. There's, there's an enlightened layer towards sexual energy that I just personally find very fascinating. I mean, how can, how would you explain um, when you walk into a room and people turn around and immediately notice you? It's like something entered the room before you did and people turn. It's like, who's that? Right. Or when the shoes on the other foot, when you're in a room and just for some reason, you look over your shoulder and you see this beautiful being just enter into the space and fill the entire place up with her light. It's like, yeah, that's interesting. I don't think I'm that beautiful because people are definitely not turning around and looking at me when I enter a room. But <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've yet to experience that that level of aura, I suppose. Um, I want to touch upon something that you're talking about um, with, with how, like, I think abstinence is, is taught. And it, it's kind of taught as like, oh, man, abstinence is for squares or it, it's like not the cool thing to be doing and so forth. But I think that there needs to be more scientific work in maybe understanding what exactly happens when human beings just, you know, forego sex and and don't don't partake in it for long durations of time, uh, you know, both voluntarily, involuntarily, so forth. And I, I just think that we would be much better off if we actually invested more scientific legwork into this. And I'm like, scientists like studying everything. And I just don't understand why this is something they don't like studying. Like, like I don't I don't really understand why no one has actually written a lot more about this. I think it's because it's really a discovery of the intangible and you start to get into this in-between space where you're walking between the doorways of spirituality and the doorways of science. I imagine it'd be very hard to put down and finding, uh, you know, put their findings down on a sheet of paper to be able to publish. I mean, I've told you before, my father's a scientist. So most of his job really is the recording of his findings and something that can be transferred to another scientist so that the bar is constantly being raised, that the theories are being vetted, and the discoveries are materialized. They're provable in, in, in every setting. You can't really do that with spirituality, can you? Right? Well, I think you could. Well, hold on now, because really? I, I think that like there's some very tangible applications. So in my intro, I alluded to the um, Muhammad Ali example. Mm. All you would need to do is set up a study where you ask professional fighters or professional athletes, do you abstain from sex before a professional fight? And then look mm. to see if their performance is better. So you could actually have a control group of, of you know, people who, you know, abstain from sex and you could have another group that, um, you know, partakes in sex before a major fight. And then you could actually see, ah, you know, there is no relationship between abstaining from sex and winning a fight. You know, I think that that's the kind of good scientific legwork that we, we could be doing and I, I think it's worthwhile. Like, do students perform? May, maybe we, there could be another study that says, do students perform better on an exam if they abstain from sex for six weeks before mm. that exam? You know, like all of this stuff could easily 
be tested with surveys and through a laboratory and, and so forth. And I'm like, why the hell are we not doing this? But couldn't you make the argument that that's just a placebo effect? Because there's, there's just so much stigma of the potency of sexual energy, right? Especially being raised by uh, family members who grew up through the 60s and 70s when the sexual revolution really took, you know, took its grip on our culture. And that's when you have all these movies like Fast Times in Ridgemont High or um, what was that one that McConaughey did? I forgot. You know, this, <laughs> OK, well, right. With that one where he's like the, you know, the dick slinging, like popular guy who drives up in a Thunderbird and, you know, takes the high school girls home. Right. <laughs> this quote was the thing I love about high school is that you keep getting older and they keep staying the same. Oh, yeah. I've heard that right? one before. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, it was there was this revolution around what sex meant. I mean, mm -hmm. take movies in the 50s compared to movies in the 60s. You had Sean Connery was maybe one of the first. Uh, iconic members that was just so hedonistic through yeah, his lifestyle. Yeah, he was right. So we're on the we're on the the back end of that now, I think, right? Or it's definitely still escalating. I mean, we can get into that. It sounds like a whole nother discussion. But couldn't you argue that that's a placebo effect because of our cultural association with the potency of of sexual spirituality or sexual energies? And could you even measure that? I mean, look, I think that the I wasn't both of us are too young to have been around in the 60s. But from what it was described to me is it's, you know, sex, love and rock and roll and all that good stuff. And, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I think about it, though, but like, let's take a look at the way Immanuel Kant describes this problem a little bit. If you're a dude and you're driving up to the college campuses and you're getting older in years, like, you know, you're, you're 27, 28, 29, 30, 32, you know, and you're spending all of your time chasing women. Well, I have to scratch my head and say, what else are you achieving other than doing that? Yeah. And I actually, I had a period of time where, you know, especially when I first turned 21, I was hitting the bars like every single Friday looking for some. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, okay, it was fun. And, and every man should have a period of time in their life where they're doing that. I, I totally get it. I totally think that every man got every, even, even in like ultra, like the Amish or ultra religious communities, mm -hmm. they actually tell their young men when they're about 18, 19, they're like, listen, dude, go out into the world. And for three or four years, go absolutely batshit crazy, get that stuff out of your system and then come home and be a good father or whatever it is, you know? So like every, every single culture does that. And, and it's no shame. And I think that's totally cool. I do think about Kant, though, is that when you're going through that three, four, five years of just drinking and going out and, and doing that, you aren't really, it's really difficult to get anything done, though, and accomplish other things. It's really hard to wake up the next Saturday at three o'clock in the afternoon and be like, all right, man, now I'm going to write that treatise on, on life or so, you know, like nothing, nothing is getting accomplished. So there is a valid point to be made that the the energy spent just uh, pursuing that all night long and whatever is going to kind of take a toll on like other intellectual accomplishments. I think that's a fair uh, just in terms in terms of just time being a finite resource. I think that's right. a fair argument to make. I agree, but then that brings up an interesting point where it's not the actual substance remaining within your body that's accruing this additional energy or genius or drive it's the lack of it being thrown away so then you have to measure this science experiment on a time scale it's like okay so if you're a fighter 
how long has it been since you've had sex to where it's effective? Not, you know, there, there's a time element to this now, because if, if that was a hundred percent true, right. That'd no. be very interesting. I would love to see those, to see the, that science experiment. I would be absolutely fascinated. Okay. So here's the deal about that. I think that the correct amount of time to abstain from sex depends on the task at hand. So if you're a fighter, then I would say it's probably the, the duration that you're training. So if your training is for like six weeks or three months, I don't know how long it takes for a UFC fighter to go to get into quote unquote fighting shape. You know, maybe I've heard six months. I don't know what it is, but maybe That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's, the duration that of your training period. And that's even, you know, I, I even think of the, the movie Rocky where Mickey says, you know, women are weak for the legs or something like that. Like just, you know, Hey, like stay, stay on the straight and narrow until you fight Apollo or whatever. So I think that that makes sense. But if your goal is to, let's say, write a book, okay. Or some other kind of task that's before you, then that duration might be longer. You know, mm. I, I don't, and I don't know, I don't know how, how much that would interfere. I don't know if you could still like, I don't know if it's domain specific, like you have to abstain from sex just if you're a fighter or if it actually goes into other domains such as writing a novel or writing a book or, or doing something else or inventing something. See, our belief now is that by uh, using abstinence, you gain an additional genius. Whereas back in the day, it was the complete opposite. Pre-Christianity, uh, the whole Dionysian mystery uh, approach the whole uh, ancient Egyptian approach towards the exchange of sexual energy. They highly encouraged you to follow a hedonistic life because they believed you were almost doing a trade that would ignite uh, creativity within a human being in order to discover these new things and have these new affirmations come forward that they normally wouldn't in a period of sexual stagnation. So what we view now as terms of uh, sexual energy is really since the Middle Ages early Christianity, the idea of divinity was the same thing. They believed that the same energies in which you exchange and intercourse with uh, was similar enough to the energies you exchanged with God. It wasn't until a little bit more of like an, uh, like a Greek approach where they separated the two uh, in the middle ages. Did you start having like friars take on this, you know, asceticism uh, mm. approach towards their life where they were 100% abstinent. So we're in that period. So, it, you know, back then, I wonder what they would say. They'd be like, absolutely not. That's absolutely crazy. <laughs> I know John down the street, John down the street over in Athens has sex every day. And let me tell you, <laughs> smartest guy I know. I'm curious what they would say. Okay. I, I Here's where I'm starting to, to kind of weigh my thumb on. In terms of actually creating more brain cells or anything like that, I don't think it makes a difference. I don't think that brain cells are actually cropping up by abstaining from sex. At least, at least I haven't been presented the evidence to suggest that much. What I do think is, is that when you have, one thing I was also reading about is the correlation between being skinnier and being smarter. Like there's actually, um, you know, they, and, and the reason they think that is because when you when you become skinnier, right, your mind goes into more of a hunting kind of mindset because you're trying to find food, and that may, you have to be smarter when you're skinnier because you're more you're hungry hungrier, so to speak, right? And that makes you think a lot more sharper because you're like, man, I I need to fill myself up. Whereas you're a bit heavier, 
you're more complacent and your mind actually becomes a little bit more weaker and says, well, I'm already full. And I think the same kind of thing maybe happens with sex where it's like your body adapts a complacent like mind, like a, a complacency where it's like, I'm already full, desire has already been mm. met and you're no longer hungry. Like you no longer have fire, what I like to call fire. You don't have fire. And when you don't have that fire, well, you're not going to dedicate yourself to something that's extremely hard and taxing and, and mentally demanding because you're already at a level of complacency. Whereas when you take away the thing that's making you comfortable, now fire has re-entered into your soul. That's interesting because the way you're describing it as a, an ecosystem with many moving parts, as opposed to the way that I was thinking about it, which is just literal like sex juice, whatever you want to call it. I'm trying to like, trying to find the most PG way of saying that, right? Like the exchange of fluids or whatever you want to say. Sorry to be gross. You know, those are <laughs> gross words to hear. Um, that's interesting, right? Because I was putting all the focus on the actual substance, but you're saying the way your mind, body, spirit, drive, social pressure, need for fulfillment all turns into this new kind of motivation because you're not satiating those desires. I think that makes more sense. I, I, I look, I, I'm not saying that the biological explanation is false. It's just that I haven't really been presented with enough, you know, with sufficient evidence to say such mm -hmm. is the case. So it could be that there is a biological chemical thing that's going on that we're not aware of. But from just a, a logical perspective, it just seems as if like, if your base need, like I know this about humans to be true, when all of our needs are being satisfied, we become rather lazy and rather complacent. It's just, it's just a fact of, of, of us as a species. And like, I think hunger and desire in some way begets innovation and it begets really great things. At least it has a pattern of, of doing that. And that's something that we can kind of focus on here is that when we're, when we're doing this, we're, we're not thinking that, that we're going to develop like mystical powers, but rather like we're basically, I think what Kant is getting at is that he's concentrating his energies into different channels. That is an interesting explanation because I've read the opposite. I've read that it actually gives you mystical powers. <laughs> well, people believe that we, we could talk about that so there's yeah. um I, I was telling you offline that there's this great episode of seinfeld where george costanza just stops having sex right like in the whole episode he just says I, i'm i'm done with it and he actually just becomes like a genius and it's done in a very comical like you know he becomes a genius in like three months flat or something like that he's reading books solving math problems he he's speaking spanish now he's just like learns languages and then the second he has he falls for a waitress and then the second he does it the magical powers go away and and i think that that episode is alluding to something that's true that like your your energies are going somewhere else i'm wondering how quickly the effects of that you know does it happen within a, like how quickly does it happen and and like how realistic is it that all of that just goes away the moment you have intercourse so that's it's kind of like the, the, the those fine boundaries that i think we could kind of talk about yeah, that would be a curious thing to test for, right? Like how long until you start getting a return on investment? Yeah. Well, in terms of um, the spiritual drive and connecting with the great divine, I think that it is a lifelong process that is needed uh, in order to achieve that. And, you know, that's basically what the aesthetics believed. 
by practicing abstinence, they were able to put all of their time and energy into reforging their idea of connecting with the great divine. And that's over a period of a life. I know Buddha did that for a long period of time before introducing the middle way. For, for me, that's definitely not worth it. I would imagine that I would feel a significant difference in my biology with a three, four month period of abstinence. I can't imagine that that would be, uh, I mean, like total abstinence, like nothing, right? Mm -hmm. We're not, you know, you know what I mean. I know what you mean, yeah. Right, so <laughs> I might go a little crazy, I think. I think most people would. You know what else is interesting too, though, right? What we're talking about is the connection between the symbolism of being a nerd in, in middle school or in high school, right? Mm -hmm. And how they correlate that without engaging in sexual activity. Now, Do you think there's credence to that? Because okay. that's kind of what we're talking about. But I think it follows my model where, and I can prop, like, believe me, I was not getting any when I was in middle school. I was a nerd. <laughs> so I, I can speak to that. And I think that it didn't give me like special powers, but I think like, like being a cool kid in middle school is a full-time job. Right. Like, especially for kids today, like there's the Instagram, there's all of these other things that mm. in order, in order to quote, you know, get laid or whatever in middle school, it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of work. And I think building up your social media, being at the right parties and, and sending a fat, like these cool kids, trust me, when I was teaching, the cool kid would be like sending text messages every, every five seconds. Right. It's a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And what happens is that your grades start to fall because your your energy is being invested into other facets. It's being invested into like going to the best parties and going to the, the best gatherings. Whereas if you're a nerd or whatever, well, now your energy is is naturally kind of being, it could be channeled into stupid things like video games and whatever and, and Final Fantasy, like that's true. But there's, there's a greater probability that could be channeled into schoolwork or something else productive. So again, I don't think that the, the, the unpopular kid just naturally, like we picture his prefrontal cortex just expanding and then like a balloon going, just like as the prefrontal cortex is just expanding and it's like a hot air balloon. No, no, no. I think that the brick wall that he's met and the frustration that he's experiencing in one area is now being rechanneled into something else. So it's a matter of just time and scheduling more than it is about the accumulation of the elixir of genius. <laughs> yeah, like, all right. So let's, I think a good way that we can solve this problem is let's take a look at the ultimate extreme. Okay. We do have eunuchs, we have monks, we have um, a lot of these people that have really gone. Um, I forgot his name, the, the famous Chinese explorer, uh, his name is eluding me right now, but he was like a eunuch and he actually like discovered new trade routes and, and so forth. I think that we have, we have a lot of characters in our life that have been abstinent. We have our Nikolai Teslas, we have our, you know, probably over the course of history, thousands and thousands and thousands of monks that were either Buddhist or Christian that, that were celibate. And okay, we got St. Augustine and so forth. But there's also been a lot of geniuses that weren't celibate, you know, like there's a lot. So I think that right. I, I think that there, there is there, there are there are people who have gone 
all the way to the other extreme and they they never quite reached enlightenment you know they never they never quite got there so mm -hmm. i think there's a little something more to this because i i think that anyone who just says to themselves yeah i'm going to give up sex and then within 10 years i'm going to be an enlightened genius i i think that's you're there's something else that's missing from that equation yeah there is something else i i don't really know what it is Right. It, it could be just a different drive, a, a different need within each one of those individuals that isn't satiated. Right. If like if we're correlating a sense of completion or feeling satiated of a need with the lack of striving to achieve some sort of paramount importance within that subject matter, then you would think that the Charlie Chaplin's, you know, the the, the rock stars of, of our time would be exhausted and making just terrible music, but they didn't, did they? So what is it? Maybe it's something else in their brain that they need. And maybe maybe there's different forms of, of this kind of spiritual exchange. There could be a little bit more of the platonic exchange, mm. or there could be more of the attachment exchange. And I wonder if the findings between testing between those two would be different. Me, you know, I, maybe. And I also think that perhaps like maybe the successful people, and this is what we could really get into because I think, you know, the devil's in the details here. Maybe your Muhammad Ali folks who just had, had their chastity and had their abstinence perfectly timed, maybe though that's the key to success right there is having the perfect timing of when, like I think every man needs to come to the realization like, hey, I'm about to embark on something of paramount importance, right? I think every man needs to sit down and be like, this is of paramount importance. I can't distract myself by going to the bars on Friday night. I can't distract myself with, with, with these urges and so forth. I need to really buckle down and be disciplined and get this thing achieved. And maybe in, in four months or five months from now, then I can let loose and be a little bit more wild. So again, it comes back to this idea of moderation that you you know that you're engaged in something of paramount importance like 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 i if you're a prized fighter you know a lot of these fighters man are getting paid like millions and millions of dollars for a fight and if you want to have another fight scheduled you got to do pretty darn well you either have to win that fight or you got to last uh, you know, I think in UFC, was it like five rounds or whatever? You have to last the entire duration. And that's freaking important. And you don't want to blow that away uh, because you wanted to get laid three days ago or something, right? That's not worth it. So I think the men that are successful make these calculations of like the payoff from this thing is so worth not not going out to the club for the next six weeks because the, the payday and the, and the results that I'm going to get are just so worthwhile. Yeah, that makes sense. That seems to be the logical answer to me, right? There's always, they always try to take two extremes and find the, the I don't know if it's called the Venn, but that's what I call it, like in a Venn <laughs> diagram that always fascinated me, right? Like the two overlapping parts, the middle Yeah, way. yeah, yeah. Um, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. See, I don't know too much about Muhammad Ali. So he was celibate during all of his fights? No, all, just six weeks leading up to the fight from what I read. Oh, really? Yeah, just wow. so six weeks uh, from what I was reading. Um, and, and this is something that, I think 
a number of, from what I've heard, a number of UFC fighters practiced some, some iteration of this. It could just be no alcohol, just basically no having fun. Like all of these fighters kind of practice like, and it could be six weeks. It could be two months. I don't know the exact duration. It probably varies from fighter to fighter. And some fighters probably ignore this and don't do it at all. But from what I've heard though, this getting serious phase actually leads to better outcomes. Like if you, if you actually have a few months of getting serious, then when that day comes, you'll be so much more prepared. Maybe it's even a psychological thing. Maybe you get into the ring and you're like, man, I really took this seriously. And now I'm in the best shape of my life. And, and your confidence, I could imagine that your confidence is at such a high level. Whereas the dude who, you know, was like, getting drunk, snorting Coke four days ago, when he enters the right. ring, he's not going to feel that ultra confidence because he knows, he knows in the, in the, in the depths of his heart, he wasn't giving it his all. Well, that's another interesting angle, right? Because then you could argue that the purpose behind all these religions saying you should be abstinent is because of what comes after, which is you getting closer to God. So the way you rationalize it yourself right? is by saying, I'm doing everything I can to achieve that higher goal, mm-hmm. even if it means not having sex. Whereas with a fighter, it says, I will walk into the ring with no idea that I missed a couple opportunities that I should have taken before getting here and that whole psychological trip. But that's interesting again, right? Because that removes the, the substance from being the primary part of this. And that it's, it's kind of a mosaic of all these different things. I mean, there's, it's like golf psychology, right? Like how many, you know, how was your swing before? What was your, what was your, uh, <laughs> you know, how was your initial tee off? Like all of this kind of adds into the, to the remainder of the experience. That makes a lot of sense to me too. Um, that makes a lot of sense, but I have, I have one particular question for you because I was really contemplating this. And yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I don't know if the, the sexual energy, the celibate energy that we're talking about is just having um, intercourse. I think it's, it's also attention and attention span. And wh- what do you think the, the the taxation on the mind is today from people on these Instagram, Facebook posts, Snapchats, sending half nude photos? I mean, I this whole thing with OnlyFans yeah, is whoa. depressing me. That's a fantastic right? um, wow. I, you're actually going on an angle I didn't even think of, and I'm glad I'm glad that you're bringing this up. Um, there have been a lot, there's been, now this is something I give the scientists credit. This is something they actually have been looking at. Pornography Mm. has had a very damaging, um, effect, Mm. especially for us male, very extremely damaging. And just for the reasons that you said, and women too, and women too, the way we treat them. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. The, the, the byproduct of that is is also, um, one pornography has actually, um, has actually lowered the quality of sexual encounters because the expectation is at such a high level that that even you know the 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 act itself has now been devalued because we have all of these images of of like almost Greek god Greek goddess perfection and that yes. that that has completely warped our 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 understanding of it but I like what you just said uh, you know a few moments ago it's actually very time consuming. It's, 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 it's your, and it doesn't have to be pornography uh, per se, but Mm. we, we are becoming, uh, we are inundated with way too many images. And I, you know, I I was reading that like when we become an image based society, there's pros and there's cons. And one of those cons is that 
if we constantly can like look at images, images and us guys, I'm not going to lie, you know, we like looking at a, a decent looking girl, you know, it, it, it warms, it brings a smile, it makes us happy to look at that. But every time that we're spending time doing that, it's actually detracting away from reading written text. And it's actually, it's actually taking away from something else that's probably of more substance because looking at a pretty girl in a magazine is not making you smarter. It's not teaching you a different language. It's not adding to the value of your life. It's, it's not adding anything. It, it maybe makes your day and it's cool or whatever. But if you're spending too much time doing that, you're not learning anything new. And that's, that's a huge time waste. Absolutely. And I think the same thing happens with sexual energy and attention spent, the attention spent on trying to attract that form of attention. And all of that takes up, it's like space on a computer. You know, you check your storage settings and you see, oh, I only have so many gigabytes left. I may have to delete some stuff. I mean, it's really like that, right? If you remove all that excess crap out of your mind, how much more room is there for creativity? And this is something that I've really been struggling with because during coronavirus, right? I watched yeah. more TV uh, in my time in New York City than I ever have. And I found that I had less time to decompart, de de what is the word? Decompartmentalize? Mm -hmm. Is that the right way? Yeah, you're saying it right. To, 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 to defrag my mental computer, right? I like that. <laughs> Defragment my computer. And I had less time to, to break down larger existential thoughts because my cup was full. And it's recently I've been really performing abstinence towards TV. Like I watch maybe 45 minutes a day. Tops. Yes. Oh and my God. You instead I'm reading, you know, I'm, I'm imagining things. I find that you know, my, my work is breathing in more information. I'm meditating every day, an hour. And so I'm having all these mental images and it's abundantly clear. And there's a, a, a difference between where I am when I'm in that mentality and where I am in the more banal earthly, earthly matters. And I'm sure it's the same thing. Absolutely. You would love my uh, episode I did with Christopher. He gave up television in 2014 and it changed his life. I'm actually on month five of no television. And wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and really, guys, if you really want a good book on this, read the book Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. Great, mm. great, great freaking book. And he actually talks about like how visual, too much visual images actually kind of soften the mind way too much it and 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 it's exactly as you describe when you're being inundated with visual images those like we have this like cliche you know a picture says a thousand words but here's the deal with that what if those thousand words are of very low quality you know or it, it, it's like i like seeing a picture but i also like reading the caption as to what the hell's going on in the picture and then that, that's something because like pictures can be doctored they can be distorted they could be showing you only one lens you know, in fact, even, you know, in the book that I'm uh, amusing ourselves to death, it actually talks about like the quality of writing went down when newspapers started containing pictures um, because they, they would show you a, a picture and they would just let the picture speak for it. And they, the captions, wow. the language got a lot weaker, whereas in the past to describe an event, well, the more articulate you were, 
the better, the more, the more interesting it was, and then the more of a full story you were presenting. Um, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna go on and on, but yes, I, I think that um, when we're living too much in the visual, th that is kind of slowing us down. You know, I think I think it's slowing us down, and it's preventing us from finding higher meaning, higher purpose, and engaging in higher order tax. Unless unless you're doing some kind of geometric math that's very visual, chances are you need to like. You, you need to change the medium in which you're getting information from. I would argue that even doing mathematic problems and seeing them in figures and images is vastly different because you still have to adjust that information and project the mm -hmm. literal image in your mind. Whereas like people forget a photo is a, a, a materialized version of subconscious. Like it, it is a snapshot of that time. And sure, there are ways that it deviates into like a little bit more of a creative angle and all that. But it's the closest thing we can get to the images we think in our mind. I don't know of another way besides maybe VR, which is really just more images in motion, right? yeah. with just a three-dimensional aspect to them. So we're prostituting our, our thoughts in a way on images. And look, you know, you know, I'm a filmmaker, you know, I'm a writer, I'm an sure. actor. So it's like, this is my, this is my business. But I find that all three of those categories are vastly improved when I'm not inundated with images and <laughs> focusing on the images within my mind, not external images leading my, uh, my scope of understanding of what I'm imagining. And I think, I think that you also have a, a social responsibility as a filmmaker to say to yourself, okay, if I'm going to get people to interact with this this, this, not to offend, but I'll just say lesser medium or so forth. I'm going to make sure it's the most high quality ass experience humanly possible, right? So if you're right. getting somebody to watch a film, make sure it's, it requires, it has a lot of critical thinking, make sure it requires, you know, it has a lot of nuance, make sure it's well written so that when people are act, interacting with this medium, there, it's really like a Scorsese caliber film. Like you're really getting something that's of high substance and of high quality. And I think that's a happy compromise, right? Like, cause I, you know, I don't want to be in the camp of like, you know, burn it, burn it all, burn it all. Like I, I'm, I'm totally a happy compromise kind of guy, but when we're interacting with these visual mediums, let's make sure that they are of high substance. And I, I think, you know, there is this, um, push getting back to our, our, our subject of like um, chastity and all this other stuff. There is, there is this possibility that something like VR or, or any of these other higher mediums are really going to distract in ways that we can't even fathom yet. And yeah. I, I think that before we come out with this stuff, I think we need to be honest with ourselves and say to ourselves, th this is going to be a rabbit hole for many men. You know, m us men have yeah. been, Drag, you know, we, first there were video games, then there was all of these other things that are, are pulling at our attention. And it's no, it's no surprise, like men are going to college less and less and less and less. Like they're, they're not doing that well. There's so many unemployed men right now where we're really suffering. And I'm like, does the world really need some other more intensive pornographic medium for men to engage with? Is that, is that, is that, that like, like we need to really, no, I'm serious. Like whoever, you know, I know people want to make money and they will make a lot of money with, you know, VR and all this other stuff, but. And only fans. Yeah. 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 But I think, I think before that, before, you know, before it's out of the bag, I think we need to really ask ourselves and say, 
we need to start getting, you know, you know, again, I don't, I'd love to hear the woman perspective on this and how pornography yeah. and things affect their mind. But, you know, since we're two guys, I think that we, 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 we really need to get some, some dialogue going here about like how these mediums are destructive. They're tearing us apart and they're taking a lot of men that have so much potential, so much mm-hmm. potential to write that next novel, to solve some great math problems, to, to come up with scientific, to, to, patent a few inventions and we need to really talk about how sexualized media is basically distracting them and i think i think we need to have this conversation sooner than later and it's such a sedative right it is it's you're not like there's a difference between watching a movie and studying humanity and its poetry and movement right or how one particular's one particular person's view or i captures something you may not necessarily have known before mm-hmm. and then it's different when you're binge watching stuff to the point where you're not even really paying attention to the camera angles or the inflection of the speech or the character's arc or change that you're just sedating yourself yes from a state of presence and the problem with pornography nowadays and only fans is it's exactly that and i don't care what you say you can't argue otherwise i don't believe that it's not a sedative And as someone who, you know, has looked at pornography, I can say this is true for myself, you know, and this whole thing with OnlyFans, it's, it's even worse. I think it's even worse in a way. Uh, You could make the argument that, you know, it's taking prostitution off the street, but it's just, it's, it's the attention span that I think is such a problem. Um, And we're giving more and more of a, of a, of a, of shares of our mental shares towards these sort of mediums. And it's in situations like this, where I see culturally the idea of what is required in order to have that exchange of sexual energy, which is in constant flux, right? We talked about the forties and the sixties major difference. Yeah. Right. I, I see it veering now into this mass produced factory, like sexual environment that doesn't even share intimacy. Yes. or the ability to, to, to bathe in each other's energy, right? That's, you don't that, even have that. That is so scary and so, so scary and so true about what you're saying right now. And it's exactly right. So we have, here's, here's going to be the, probably the most difficult part of the conversation is what do we do? Now we have instances from history. We have like the temperance movement where alcohol was banned and I am not a legislative type of guy. I don't think that legislative <laughs> remedies are going to solve any of this. In fact, if pornography or if any of these like things were made illegal tomorrow, well, then there'd be a bunch of dudes wanting it even more, right? People paying right. even, wasting even more money and going through more difficult right. obstacles to get it. So I'm not a legislative guy. What I do think is the smartest thing is never outright ban something like this. If you outright ban it, it's it's over. It's over. You're going to have uh, an insurrection. You're going to have underground cults and all this other stuff <clears throat> starting to sprout out. But what we do need to do is we need to start educating. And I think I think that you know, and I think I think we're in a good position to do this because we are young men. And I think that you know, it's always better to hear from somebody that is the same as you. Right. And I think that's that's where this gets really valuable. I think us young guys need to start kind of coming together, having these really honest conversations and so forth about like, hey, man, too much of this is really leading you down a dark path. And and it could just be something like, hey, bro, 
what have you achieved in the past six months or, or what, what, what have you been doing with your time? Like, tell me, like, right. I think every man needs to talk to another man and be like, here's the breakdown of my day of the things that I did. And then just, that's a good angle to approach this by like, Hey man, I, I noticed there's this like, you know, five hour gap of not much going on here. How do we right. fill that up with something a little bit more productive? That's something that I think, and no one's going to do this for us. Like no, but no one's going right. to come along and, and, you know, I, I think maybe the closest thing we have to this is like a Jordan Peterson, but that's not enough. Like we need more right. men, especially younger men coming in and, and you know, it's our generation. The, the, the boomers are not going to be here forever. And we need to start taking ownership for our own lives because no one else is going to do it for us. This is, this is why your podcast is so important is because I honestly believe the answer to that is a healthy fraternal setting Yes, where there's yes. this community agreement to uphold one another to a certain standard and most importantly not be napoleon on a hill when speaking to other people mm-hmm. but to always be allowed discourse and the ability to exchange ideas within that but the reality is this is the basis of all things fraternity the basis of well maybe not anymore but back in the day when fraternities were actually like contributing something to the world now you know yeah now it's like the, right the, rape and- the fraternity used to be uh, you know i think a, an organization of uplifting you know one man right. reaching out his hand like a senior he was typically like a senior in college reaching his hand out to the freshmen and being like right. follow me son we're going to teach you the ways instead of like you know taking kegs of beer or whatever and, and shoving that down your throat and i'm like yeah that's like, we're destroying, we're basically destroying our entire sex this way. Like our entire sex is being completely wiped out by, by this like never ending hedonistic adventures, <laughs> hedonistic I, adventures. I, I agree. And this is why I study mysticism and spirituality for these exact reasons is because I want to be able to pass on that knowledge to somebody else. Because the reality is, is that I didn't have one structured individual who is able to lead that through me lead lead that for me through life now i had to kind of take a mosaic of different lessons from a lot of different places like most people but this is the argument for people wanting to bring back religion and you know that can become a little bit of like a zealot problem in the future mm-hmm. but you know there's a lot to be said about that what is your form of religion where is your community what are their standards what is the bar that they set themselves how do you plan on elevating that bar? Are you holding yourself accountable for that? I, absolutely. And, you know, like there, there is much debate, like, you know, can we ever go back to religion, you know? And, and like, I, I think, I think like anything, it's a compromise. I think there's, you know, one of the tenets of this podcast is that we can always extract wisdom from religion without necessarily endorsing one religious system as being the end all be all. And I think that's, that's a good starting point where it's like, okay, let's let, like in this conversation, we've talked about Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, and it's like, are yeah, science, have we endorsed one of those things as being quote unquote, the answer? No, but we've nope. extracted wisdom from each of these pockets to kind of create a worldview of discipline and of understanding. And I think that that's, that's what we as men need to do is we need to start holding ourselves accountable 
to these systems, not embracing one system in particular, but being like, hey, do you know that during the Middle Ages, knights right. would do this, and that actually made them better fighters and right. made them more, you know, we need to start creating a library and indexes of, of, of knowledge and sources that we can refer to. And, you know, maybe in our liberal arts colleges, that's not happening anymore. Like they're favoring, like we discussed on a previous podcast, like, you know, scholarly article written in 2017 is now being taught instead of like ancient wisdom from medieval knights, you know, and it's it's like, it it is, it is having, you know, some damage on our society. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would encourage anyone who's listening to, to put in the work, to do the research. Don't just go down one line because there are so many commonalities between the messages of religions that happen to have holy wars between each other or epic level purges of that particular type of religion and their home country there's so many comparisons between pagan ideas of what of what nature may mean compared to some uh, ancient egyptian comparison towards what the, the animal means within a human being towards the Greek version of how they separate nature and man to Christian. You know, there's so much comparison. They very, obviously there's, there's a variety between all of them, but they all f- fundamentally grab the same core tenets. Focus on that. Yes. Focus on that. Focus what you need to do and use that as your philosophy. I mean, this is a huge aspect of stoicism. Mm. Stoicism doesn't draw a specific line. It says, improve yourself. That's the rule. You have to be improving yourself every day. That's what it means to be a stoic. Absolutely. And the last thing I want to touch upon is this idea of asceticism, which you brought off, which you brought up offline. And I think every single religion practices some form, some form of asceticism. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I are currently practicing a very remedial, but some some reduced version of that as well. And I think that it's not this all or be nothing, you know, all or nothing kind of philosophy. It's not like sell all your items, live on the street, um, you know, like, like where the city, you know, like I'm not preaching this crazy, this craziness, but what it does teach us is that there are times in life where we need to get very, very serious and foregoing pleasure is a Mm -hmm. part of that human experience. And I think our, I think our materialistic capitalist society says pleasure pleasure new shoes new shoes new shirt new shirt better car better car over and over and over again and we 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 wonder why we have so many people on antidepressants and all of this other stuff going on and i'm like well maybe instead of pursuing all of these material goods maybe if they just you know read a page from the book of aestheticism and started focusing on having less but then cultivating inward discipline then maybe, maybe by accident, they would stumble upon some kind of happiness and not necessarily be so dependent on, on external things to bring them happiness. That would be great. I'm hoping, I'm hoping so, man. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you again. It's always a pleasure. This concludes the 96th episode of the Truth Island Podcast. Now, I'm Aaron Azarad.